Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Brett Kogelmas, Managing Director at the Energy Impact Center and host of the Titans of Nuclear podcast. Like me, Brett was a technology entrepreneur. He sold his company, was concerned about climate change, was longing to work on an important problem for the world, and found himself doing a deep dive into climate change, which led to a deep dive into nuclear, which has now led to 1,200 discussions and about 170 published interviews with experts in nuclear on the Titans of Nuclear podcast. Brett was a super interesting guest because he's very knowledgeable, very well connected, and has a unique perspective from all the discussions that he had. He's also got a pretty controversial view of the world. In this episode, we covered a number of topics, including Brett's journey and what's led him to the point he's on now, his current worldview and how that's evolved over the discussions that he's had, what brought him to the benefits of nuclear technology and believing that it is the only option that will solve this climate change problem in the timelines that we need to, and also went through point by point of all the common objections to nuclear and Brett's rebuttals. I enjoyed this episode and learned a lot. I hope you do as well. Without further ado, Brett, welcome to the show. Jason Jacobs, thanks for having me on your program this time. Come on, Brett, don't be weird. Like this is just two normal guys having a normal discussion. <laughs> Fine, I've never done a podcast before. We'll see how it goes. So Brett, I keep wanting to call him Brett Kogelsong, Kogel, like I swear, I just can't. I've said your name like 500 times in the last few months as we've gotten to know each other, and I don't think I've once gotten it right, but Brett Kugelmath. There you go. You got it right. So this interview is a bit like the student interviewing the master because your Titans of Nuclear podcast was actually one of the things that inspired me on the path. And actually on a deeper level, your climate motivation, which led you to your Titans of Nuclear podcast, is just very, it's eerily similar to the path that I'm on maybe six months or a year behind you. When I make introductions to you to people, I send them another follow-up email being like, Jason's my spirit animal. <laughs> He's the person out there that I think I relate to the most on this climate journey that I'm on. And so it's appropriately titled your podcast name, Climate Journey. Yeah. And I think part of that is really comforting in that I do feel like I'm not as alone. And then part of it is really scary because you're a fucking animal. And it's like, man, if this is who I see in myself, then like, I've got problems. <laughs> I think it helps that I, so when I moved out here to get this started, like I don't have a family. I moved out by myself. It was easy for me to just go balls to the wall, crazy, doing as many episodes as I could, nonstop, traveling the world. I mean, we're at, now it's been two years, we're at over 170 episodes. Two years, 170 episodes. It's been pretty crazy. So I'm just thinking, so I committed to two episodes a week, so... That's 104 a year. Oh, you know what that means? That means in two years, we're going to have over 200. So you're weak. All right. I got to pick up the pace. I got to pick up the pace. <laughs> so take me back, Brett. So, I mean, you're full on in nuclear now, but how did you get here? I mean, similar to your story, after I sold off my tech company, I was looking around trying to figure out what's the best way to spend my time, my resources, what would feel fulfilling to work on? And the answer to that just constantly kept to mind 
by some prodding from friends who remind me that this is all I talk at cocktail parties for the last 10 years. What was all you talked about? Climate change. Got it. And where did that come from? Was there some specific moment that was a turning point for you, this awakening, or was gradual? I don't know. I think everyone has something that they naturally gravitate towards. And it doesn't matter what it is, but I think the key is understanding that thing about yourself and then building the rest of your life around it in order to work on that thing, that thing that drives you. So I don't think it's so much like, how did I find climate change? It was just that like climate change was the thing. And how did I decide to build my life around it? And how did you decide to build your life around it? So so you were in between companies, you were wandering in the wilderness, if you will, you had climate change on your mind. What then? Is this out there like in a bunch of places or is this breaking news? I don't know. We'll see how it comes out. Clearly, I take meetings with people and I walk through my story and even on my podcast, little bits and pieces of it have probably come out. But we'll see. We'll see what new gets revealed this time. You did the one interview like where you flipped it around on Titans of Nuclear. But I feel like your thing is it's more business like than my thing. So if there's one goal I have, it's to like get some new stuff out of you over the course of this discussion. You're walking in the woods. You have climate change on your mind. Then what? Okay, so here's something new for you. When I went to grad school, I took a class called design thinking. It was part of my major. I got a master's in mechanical engineering and ME310. It's design thinking. And the class is really about framing the problem correctly. Once you frame the problem correctly, you can develop whatever skill set you need, whether, I mean, in the case of this class, if you need to learn how to solder together a circuit board, you can figure that out. But the real key is to understand, do you need to build that circuit board to begin with? What is the problem that you're trying to solve? And so upon from reflecting the last five years of running a business and upon the fundamentals of the subject that I learned, design thinking, I tried to apply the same thing to climate change. And I said, okay, let's just take a step back. Let's now focus on the media narrative. Let's just try to identify what is the problem. And so everything has come from framing the problem. And so what is climate change? To me, climate change, it's going to be like untold human and environmental damage over the course of some period of time. So the first thing that we have to do is figure out what period of time is that going to be? What kind of damage was there going to be? And what even causes climate change, right? To some people, it's actually not even so clear. A lot of people think it's emissions. It's CO2 emissions that you put into the air every year. No, that's not what causes climate change. What causes climate change is the CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions that have already been in the air. That's what's capturing the heat. And how were you learning this stuff along the way? Were you reading books? Interviewing, interviewing people. So before there was a podcast on nuclear only, I was just meeting with climate scientists. Carrie Emanuel from MIT. I didn't even know this part. So your story is even more similar to my story than I thought. I wasn't thinking about the podcast at that point. But I was just trying to meet with climate scientists. You were just meeting them to learn. Just meeting them to learn. The two things that jumped out to me was first, that the consequences that are the most serious, at least in my mind, were going to be drought. And then some people push back. It's like, oh, okay, there's precipitation and then there's moisture in the soil. So drought just doesn't really cover. Okay, whatever. Changes to precipitation, right, that affect people's ability to produce food. Let's call it drought from here on out. That is going to cause hundreds of millions of people to either starve to death or be displaced, which then lead to civil conflict. Like that's the issue. And that's not happening in 2100 when we're going to have the sea level rise of this, that, or that many feet. No, that's going to start happening in the next few decades. It's already started happening. People attribute Syria to that. A lot of the migrant crisis, even on our southern border from Central America, they attribute to precipitation variability. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And so we're looking at a world in which just in a couple decades – we're going to see hundreds of millions of people displaced due to drought. 
And that's what you were learning about as you were making the rounds? Yes. And so the first problem definition that I set was that, okay, this is something that needs to be totally reversed in just a couple decades, not something that we need to slow down by 2100. So that was the first part of the problem. What is it that we're even doing here? And the other part of the problem, which is what I was saying, like, I cannot hammer home on this enough. It is not new emissions that cause climate change. It is the greenhouse gases in the air. Yes, new emissions change the rate at which we accumulate heat. That rate is called radiative forcing. But even if you were to zero out all global emissions in every single sector, whether it be industry, transportation, electricity, agriculture, heat, all of them combined, if you were to zero it out, we would still have accelerating, runaway, out of control climate change at actually not that different a rate than we have today. Wait, I just want to understand. So there's the PPM or parts per million that are already in the air, but you're saying if you zeroed out all new emissions that the parts per million would continue to climb? Parts per million would still be in the air. The heat that that's parts per million trap would continue to climb. So the temperature is going to keep rising even if you level out the PPM. The heat will continue to rise based on the current PPM that's in the air. The heat capture, the temperature, the average temperature year over year will continue to rise even if you zero out all new emissions. So would that also happen if we weren't in the 400s for PPM and we were back at the levels that we were pre-industrial? Yes, we've been heating since about 1750. So would the planet just continue to get hotter regardless of where the PPM That's is? That's right. And what the PPM does is it determines the rate at which it gets hotter. Here's a good analogy. Let's say that you're driving somewhere, but you're driving in the wrong direction. If you're driving in the wrong direction at one mile per hour, not that big a deal. At some point, you can figure out how to turn around and you haven't lost that much ground. Once we hit that 400 PPM mark, we were traveling in the wrong direction at 60 miles an hour. If we don't add another PPM to the air, that means no new emissions, period. If all humans disappeared, all human activity disappeared tomorrow, you would still be driving in the wrong direction at 60 miles an hour because the PPM we've already added to the air. So what would actually, I guess there are things that could slow that, but is there anything that could ever reverse that? Yeah. Well, what you could do, listen, there's geoengineering stuff people talk about. I'm going to put that aside for now. That's not really reversing it. It's just masking it. That's right. It's just masking it. And it still might- It's like anxiety medication versus meditation. If I've defined the problem as drought or precipitation pattern changes, it might even make the problem worse. So we're going to put aside geoengineering just for a second. The only other thing that we can do is get the greenhouse gases out of the air and get them somewhere else, probably in, back into the ground or into building materials. So pulling carbon out, either sequestering it, converting it into valuable products, et cetera. That's right. That is the only way that we can reduce the rate at which we accumulate heat other than geoengineering. But to do that, at least from the novice reading that I've done, there'd be a big land use problem and a big economics problem in terms of it's just so prohibitively expensive, especially to do it at that scale, and who's going to pay for it? Okay, so your line of thinking is exactly my line of thinking. That is the next question. So we're solving a problem here. We're trying to solve climate change. So we started by correctly defining the problem, and now we're working towards solutions. And what we're doing is we're saying, how do you pull that much CO2 out of the air in a way that is economically rational, in a way that makes sense given the resource constraints of the globe? Just to pause for a minute, but when people used to say if we were more aggressive at getting on this stuff back when we first started knowing about it decades ago, that emissions reduction would have been enough. Back to my car analogy, by 1990, we were 30 miles per hour heading in the wrong direction. 
So now we're 60 miles per hour heading the wrong direction. But either way, we were going to still keep heading in the wrong direction at 30 miles an hour, even if we addressed this in the 90s. Even without the Industrial Revolution? The Industrial Revolution is back when we started going to one mile an hour, two miles an hour in the wrong direction. And then it's the Industrial Revolution plus 100 years of cumulative emissions that has us going at 30, 40, 50, 60 miles per hour in the wrong direction. So it would have been happening anyways, but just so incredibly slow that it would have been statistically insignificant. It might have even been better. Listen, there's nothing actually wrong with climate change. Maybe we, as advanced human species, we should be thinking about changing the climate to best suit humans and the environment. The question is the rate of change. So if we change things so fast that the 7 billion people living on this planet cannot adapt in terms of their food infrastructure, in terms of the way they live, in terms of the cultural effects that it's going to have when you move people from one area to another that they don't own, that they don't belong, that's what's going to cause total and utter chaos and devastation. Okay, got it. So global warming is caused by the CO2 that's already been emitted. So you're on your journey. You piece that together. Put that together. And then I said, okay, what's next? So now it's about you know, what causes this problem to begin with and what is it going to take to reverse this problem? You could either pull the, all the CO2 out of the air using some sort of machines, or you could do it biologically, perhaps. So those are essentially the two paths to getting the CO2 out of the air. The problem with doing it from like a machine-based perspective, giant fans that suck the CO2 out of the air, sort it, rip apart the seas, rip apart the carbon and the oxygen, and then do something with those. So that takes energy. And what's causing all of this is energy. So if you're going to do it the machine route, you need an energy source that's carbon-free, scalable to global levels of consumption, cheap. You still have to give energy to all the people on planet Earth. So is reducing emissions still important? I would argue that current emissions... Well, let's look at it this way. Current emissions are what? Net 20 gigatons of CO2 per air. What's already in the air is 1,000 gigatons of CO2. So it's about 2% of the problem. So are they important? If you can solve the 1,000 gigatons that's already in the air, I would say no. You do not have to worry about reducing new emissions. You don't have to worry about the 20 gigatons that we add every year if you have a solution <laughs> to remove the 1,000 gigatons of CO2. A lot of people don't like to hear that, by the way. That is extremely controversial. People think that that alienates people, feels that they can't do anything. It alienates entire industries that are the advocates of dealing with no, climate and change. And it gives people permission to keep doing whatever it is that they're doing. And there might not be anything wrong about that. If you produce, let's say, 20 tons of garbage a year, oh, garbage is a bad thing. But if we have a mechanism in society to collect all that garbage and turn it into valuable products, including landfill that builds up the Boston Harbor that was all built with landfill, right? Is it a bad thing that you created 20 tons of garbage a year? No, you helped build Boston. So it is very emotional that we associate waste with bad things, but it's not necessarily true. It matters how you manage that waste. It matters how you deal with that. And other than climate change, there's nothing wrong with putting CO2 in the air. So I just want to recap. So your first aha on this journey was that the existing carbon in the air is the majority of the problem and the new emissions are on top of that, but a small percentage of the overall problem. And the second aha was that given that cracking carbon removal at scale is the most important thing to solve. Is that right? I would say that that's the second and third aha. The first aha was how fast we need to do this, that this needs to be done within 20 or 30 years. This is not something that can wait until the second half of the century because of the devastation that it is going to cause to people. But this being getting the carbon in the air under control. If we have a solution to deal with the carbon in the air, we do not need to worry about new emissions. Okay. So we got to get the carbon in the air under control. 
new emissions are small percentage-wise relative to the carbon in the air that already exists, if you look at like numerators and denominators, and therefore finding a solution to getting carbon out of the air at massive scale is the thing that, if cracked, would be far more impactful than anything else that we could do. It's the only thing that matters. If you ask yourself the question, okay, people probably pitch you startup ideas, right? Sometimes. I try to avoid it now if it's not climate-focused. Right. People pitch me ideas all the time, too. And one of my first gut checks on them is, what does the world look like if you got everything that you're asking for right now? If I gave you a couple million bucks, if you built out that product, does that actually get you what you think you want? You have to define what you want. And the answer with respect to climate change is if you were to get rid of all emissions globally, worldwide, across every single sector, would that get you what you want? Nobody's thinking like that, but no, it wouldn't. You would still have runaway, out-of-control climate change that practically has the same effect. Yeah, that is a different viewpoint than many experts. Yeah, because many experts are, they come from a position where that answer doesn't suit their current day-to-day -day work. That answer means they should probably be fired or quit what they're doing. And most people rationalize around that. Well, this is good. We have a very contrasting viewpoint that we're starting down the path of on the pod. And by putting it out there, we're going to get feedback and pressure test it. So I like it. Keep going. Okay. So there's two ways to get global levels of carbon out of the air, the thousand gigatons of CO2 out of the air. You could do it biologically, or you could do it with giant energy consuming machines. Biologically, it's like maybe we could genetically engineer some tree to grow 100 times as fast or genetically engineer lily pads to cover the oceans and then specifically design them to sink after they've absorbed a ton of carbon and drop to the bottom of the ocean. Maybe, but there's nothing that I've seen in genetic engineering that is that advanced yet. And if it takes decades and decades to come along, that's too late. But when it comes to the mechanical version of sucking carbon out of the air, now all you have to do to figure out if this is possible is look at non-carbon-based energy systems. And so this is what I did in October of 2017. I ran my own analysis of all of the various energy systems out there, and I didn't have any horse in the race. I worked at a solar company early on in my career, but that was a long time ago. So I just ran my own analysis of all the various energy sources, and sure enough, nuclear energy which I had my own preconceived notions about, it was orders of magnitude better than any other energy source, orders of magnitude at being able to provide energy with its lowest inherent carbon footprint itself, because every energy source has a carbon footprint. If you're creating carbon at a rate faster than you're able to use that energy to suck it out of the air, then it doesn't work. And that is the case with all intermittent energy sources, aka renewables. But nuclear has such a low carbon footprint and produces so much energy for that carbon footprint that you could use that energy to both account for its own carbon footprint and remove the thousand gigatons of CO2 from the air. And it's the only energy source that the math works out like that. Yeah, because I've heard you say carbon negative energy when you talk about nuclear. I never understood what you meant. Yeah, so carbon negative energy. So, well, let me add another piece of spice to the recipe. The only way that I think that this can economically work out because people in governments are making rational choices to pollute because energy is what gives us prosperity. Using energy, we have brought billions of people out of poverty. We have created trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars of wealth, of prosperity, of buildings, of medicine. I mean, all of modern society is based on energy. And so one could actually 
argue that climate change is worth the prosperity that cheap energy brings. Okay, so keep that in the back of your head also. Well, weighing against what you were talking about, the displacement of hundreds people, of millions of people, famine. Yeah, and so even weighing against disease, that, even weighing against that, energy brings species extinction. Yeah, and that's what's crazy, and that's why governments rationally decide to secure the cheapest energy for their people above all else, including in India where they're smogging millions of their own people to death. They're rationally making their decision to bring a billion people out of poverty and choke to death two million of their own people. Okay, so how many interviews were you in out of the 170 when you started? Where are we in that? We're still before zero. So now I've just run the numbers and decided that nuclear energy was the only way that we could pull a thousand gigatons of CO2 out of the air. Got it. So you were in discussions, but not in interviews yet. But I mean, like this is me just doing some math, reading some books. Obviously there's more to the story as you always find when you talk to people. And so then I went out to discover what that more to the story was. I moved to DC. I set up the Energy Impact Center essentially to understand nuclear energy better. Wait, let me ask you a question. I know the answer to, but our listeners don't that I think is relevant. How did you pick DC? Okay, this is an interesting one. So as part of trying to map out what nuclear energy even was, I went online, I put together a list of, I just Googled nuclear energy conferences. I found every nuclear energy conference in the last 20 years. I then created a spreadsheet with every company of anyone who had ever shown up to one of those conferences. I then built a little mapping interface. My last business was mapping with drones. So that was fun and easy for me to do. I built a little mapping interface and then I plotted those, I think it's like 1,500 companies that had shown up to nuclear conferences in the last 20 years. And the concentration was mostly on the East Coast. And I figured, and then a lot of those conferences happened to show up in DC too. So I figured I would have access to the most people in the most efficient manner if I set up in DC. And you just came here all by your lonesome? Came here by myself, didn't know anybody. When was that? 2017. It's the end of 2017. And to do what in your mind at that time? What were you coming here to do? My goal was to, so while I was making this process, I also broke out all of these people into categories. Are they technologists? Are they economists? Nuclear people. Nuclear people. Yeah. Technology economists, are they part of the industrial supply chain? So now I had this just like incredible list of people and expertise. And so my goal was to talk to every single category of expertise and talk to at least 10 people in each. Now, when you discovered that we needed a carbon negative energy source and you discovered that nuclear could be that energy source and that got you really excited, there's a lot of well-known criticism of nuclear out there on the safety side, on the proliferation side, on the waste side, on the cost side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Were you well-versed on those concerns at that time or did you then dig into pressure test that nuclear had the whole package and not just the zero carbon energy. The unintended consequences and these other things, were those on your mind at that time? I went in assuming those were all problems that could be solved with some elegant engineering solution. As a good mechanical engineer, I was like, yeah, I had my preconceived notions about waste, radiation, safety. I was like, okay, fine. Uninformed yet, but your hypothesis was that if you did the work, you would find that it was solvable? That's right. And that was back in 2017. That was back in, well, it was back in 2017 that I started this. And then throughout, it took me three months to even get my first five people to talk to me in the nuclear energy space. It's a very like secretive, closed off group. They feel like they've been constantly attacked for decades. And it took a long time for me to gain the trust of the community. You're such a likable guy. (laughs) It's just a face. (laughs) Okay. So you could be zero carbon energy had these concerns, were confident that there were answers if you went and did the work. 
move to DC to start the process of doing that work? Is that what I'm hearing? That's right. Okay. And then what? And then within the first few months, all of these preconceived notions, the waste, the safety, the radiation, the weapons, one by one, I found that these were myths. And all of these preconceived notions were dispelled. The waste has never hurt a single person, place, or thing in all of human history. How is it possible that something is so dangerous that it needs to be protected for millions of years if it's never hurt anyone ever? And then when I started interviewing experts on waste, I was like, well, can you paint the picture of how someone could be hurt by waste to me? And their answers were ridiculous. Most of the answers were, well, if we forgot about it a thousand years from now, whatever case it was in might be eroded, little flecks of dust might come off, someone might be walking by in this advanced civilization that just forgot about the waste, a fleck of it might get into their lungs, and they would have like a 0.02% increased chance of getting cancer. That's the best you can do for waste? Are you kidding me? But isn't this stuff just sitting in temporary caskets right now at these facilities? So what? What hazard does it pose is the question. This table, this table does pose a hazard. You could trip, you could fall, you could hit your head on it. And people do. People die due to tables. Is that a threat? (laughs) You better watch what you say. Maybe it will be. (laughs) Everything imposes a risk. It turns out that nuclear poses less of a risk than this table right here because there's so much less of it. It is 3 million times the energy density of coal. What that means is for the same heat produced, there's 3 million times less stuff that comes out the other end. There's so little of it. For the people that would then respond and say, well, what about Yucca Mountain? What about Yucca Mountain? Like there's no, like we tried to find a long-term home and we couldn't get it happen politically and we have all this stuff sitting in caskets and there's nothing we can do with it and it's gotta find a home and we're just gonna what, dig a hole and hope it never comes up and it's super toxic and terrible. It's based on a faulty thesis. I'm noticing the clothes that you're wearing here where you got read some red socks. You got some nice jeans. Was that raw denim? You got a nice shirt on. Okay, so all of these things were made with dyes. That meant gallons and gallons, just for the clothes you're wearing now, of toxic chemicals, which last infinity long. Okay, not millions of years. Infinity long were just dumped into the environment at rates a million fold what nuclear would do. So not only is it not hazardous on its own, but... Everything else that we dismiss as, oh, we just throw in a landfill. What if I were to ask you, like, what do we do about the clothes waste? And I were to say, you cannot wear any clothes. Society cannot have clothes until we figure out how to deal with a toxic waste that lasts infinity long from every person's clothes on this planet. You would look at me like I'm ridiculous. I would. My kids would say, yay, we get to be nudies. (laughs) But I would think it's ridiculous. So after I learned about how little a hazard nuclear waste created... That's how I felt. I felt that anyone who asked that question, it was a ridiculous question. And now I know it still needs to be dealt with. Listen, if we're going to deal with this thing on a society-wide basis, we need to have better answers. We need to find better ways to communicate with people about these issues that people have a very emotional response to. I acknowledge that. But here, you and me, and to your audience listening, that's what I learned about nuclear waste and how dangerous it was. But what about weaponizing it? Because if it gets into the wrong hands, and how are we going to police that? Okay, so weapons comes next. Let's talk about weapons. So ironically, the one thing that can prevent something from becoming a nuclear bomb is the fuel staying in the reactor. Because what happens is your plutonium-239 bomb is a U-238 atom, uranium-238, with an extra neutron on it. When they make plutonium weapons, they've got to build special reactors that can add on that extra neutron. Here's the crazy thing, though. The normal commercial nuclear reactor 
it is designed in a way so it captures another neutron and creates a plutonium-240. You can't make a bomb with plutonium-240. And you can't separate plutonium-240 from plutonium-239. So the one thing that makes it so it is impossible to create a plutonium bomb is a nuclear reactor. But that's kind of really in there in the weeds. Like we're talking about neutrons now, we're talking about different reactor types, we're talking about how things are figured, probably leads to 100 more questions. And I asked 100 more questions. But that was the next myth that was dispelled for me, that nuclear reactors could be made to use nuclear weapons. I mean, I'm no expert, but if you ask experts in this area, they would say, well, sure, there's proliferation risk, but, and then they would give you some, well, if it's regulated properly and the pros outweigh the risk and things like that, but they acknowledge that there's some risk, but you're saying that it's impossible. So who, I guess, where's the disconnect? Who are you talking to? Who is saying that there's a risk? Why don't you check their credentials? Why don't you see what industry that they're in? Are they in the industry that creates a nuclear power plants? Or are they in the industry that they get paid to protect people from nuclear weapons? Who are you talking to? I mean, you're telling me that there are people out there who are telling you that there is a risk from nuclear reactors. I'd say check their credentials, because I did. So how far am I into this journey? I don't come from the nuclear industry. I'm not here to defend the nuclear industry. I'm here to learn from every nuclear expert that I can get my hands on. We've done 170 podcast episodes, but we've talked to 1,200 people in the last two years, 1,200. So yeah, I've been questioning people's credentials. Okay, so we talked about waste. We talked about proliferation. So what about safety, catastrophic meltdowns, things like that, like not in my backyard and specifically, and I don't know if it's case by case or what, but you know, you hear about Three Mile Island, you hear about Chernobyl, you talk to people who maybe grew up near the nuclear plant in Los Angeles. And so I haven't done all the work to like dig into all these different things, but the people that feel this way feel strongly, which would give me pause in terms of getting behind something like this until I went and did all that work. So I guess you came in fresh, but you're further than I am. So what ground did you cover that and where did you come out on this stuff? Okay, so now you wanna know about safety, but you touched upon a couple of things there. You're like, what about those people? I'm like, what about those people? When it comes to solving climate change, do I really care what some elite people in Massachusetts or California think what emotional tie they have because their parents grew up in an era where the environmentalists were all anti-nuclear, or maybe they grew up in that era where that's what it meant to be an environmentalist, was to be anti-nuclear. So that's why it's based on misinformation and outdated or irrational fears? Have things changed? And if so, what? It is based on misinformation and totally rational fears. Totally rational fears. Why do we feel this way? Why would anyone feel so innately that nuclear power plants are so dangerous. It's because we go to these incredible lengths to add extra safety systems in order to bolster them. We put a four foot thick concrete dome to protect it from an airplane crash. That tells me as just like a natural citizen who should be afraid of something, means that if an airplane crashed into that, it would hurt more people than if an airplane crashed into a skyscraper. Otherwise we would put four foot thick concrete domes around every skyscraper, rationally people decide that they should be afraid of what is inside of a nuclear power plant. What do we know from the facts? We know at Fukushima, where we had three light water reactor meltdowns, right? We'll put Chernobyl aside for a second because that wasn't a commercial reactor, that was a nuclear weapons production facility. But the power plants that we have all across America were the Fukushima style reactors, a light water reactor. What happened when three of them melted down? How many people got hurt? Zero. Do you need to know anything more than that to make a decision to counter what you rationally feel? It's hard to counter what you rationally feel, but do you need to know anything more than that 
that three total catastrophic, as the word you used, meltdowns of a light water reactor didn't end up hurting a single person? What more do you need to the answer of the safety question? Yeah, well, I think the good thing is by putting this story out there, when people hear this, then I think I'll hear some of the the counter arguments and other side of the story. And I'm not suggesting that anything you're saying is misinformation, but you've gone and done the work. Like one of the reasons I have this podcast is because I haven't done the work. I'm in the process of doing my work, but the podcast is a way to not only do the work, but show the work so that the listeners don't just hear the conclusion where I come out the other side, which is what I'm getting from you now, which makes sense because I'm asking you, what do you think? And you're telling me what you think. But 1,200 discussions went into informing what you think, right? So I'm trying to show my work. And by the way, I didn't start speaking with this conviction until I was at conversation 865, literally. I took some time to reflect and I shut down the podcast for two months after doing it for a year. This was October of 2018. And so I took it down for two months, didn't record any new episodes and just spent time reflecting. Because I wouldn't say these things out loud, even after 865 conversations, a year of trying to brush up on this, because it was just so counter to the narrative that's out there. I felt embarrassed saying it out loud. It's only until this point that I reflected on it until I started understanding why it is the way it is, why the industry speaks in a certain way, why people feel a certain way. I used to say it was irrational that people felt that way. And until I realized it was rational that people were afraid of nuclear, I didn't start dismissing these concerns around proliferation, waste, and safety. Well, let me try a couple more on for size. So another one is nuclear is never going to be cost competitive. And by the time it is, we're not going to need it anyways, because renewables are going to carry the day. So that's the problem to solve. So that is the problem to solve. Cost was the one issue. I mean, I came up with a list. So we talked about safety proliferation ways. There's a half dozen other public perception. I mean, you could categorize all the problems. I got one more after this, but cover this one. But then I do the, have o- one, the more. Only one The only one that was left was cost. I got one other one, but let's talk about cost. Yeah, nuclear, new nuclear plant costs about 10 times as much, let's say a gigawatt scale plant, to build as a coal plant. And your cost on a levelized cost of electricity basis is about twice as much as coal at the end of the day. How is that possible? And so that is essentially what the remainder of our conversations have been trying to figure out. It's been trying to meet with experts from all of these different perspectives to answer now that one question. What is it that is driving cost in nuclear energy? And what's your sense of that from the discussion so far? We could do a 10-hour podcast on that. I started giving lectures on it. So I've now been invited out to a half dozen universities around the country and around the world to speak at conferences, on climate conferences, at nuclear conferences, because- A little humble brag, you just slipped that in there. Well- I'm just joking. So what I want to do- That's like my thing, I call people no, out good, on humble please brag. please do. I know, I've been listening to your previous podcast. I love it. But what I've been trying to do is answer that question as thoroughly as possible. And so I put up this lecture series online, and so people can listen to the very, very in-depth analysis of what is driving cost in nuclear energy. This conversation isn't enough. Where can people find that? If you go to YouTube, and you type in, oh boy, this is going to be tough, Brett Kugelmass lectures. Kugel saying not, yeah. <laughs> or you type in Titans of Nuclear, you can find our channel, Titans of Nuclear. Or you type in my name, B-R-E-T, that's just one T, K-U-G-E-L-M-A-S-S. And type in lecture, and you'll see my lecture series. Okay, so you've been out lecturing, and what have you been saying? So we walk through many of the drivers of cost in nuclear energy, a lot... <sighs> I hate to try to just simplify it in five or 10 minutes right here, but if I can narrow it down to a couple things to just to give you a bit of an appetite, outdated radiation standards and poor construction management. 
those have been the two things that are making nuclear energy cost 10 times as much as it should cost. I guess on the outdated radiation management, how do we get out of that given that it's, I mean, that's all regulated heavily by the NRC. Yeah, not by the NRC. So the NRC is actually out there trying to do a good job. They're mandated by Congress to protect the public. They are following the radiation standards set to them by the radiation standards bodies, the ones who set this. And they are using bad data because the radiation standards bodies are misreporting what the dangers of radiation are by a factor of 10,000. 10,000. They're off by a factor of 10,000. Why is that? Historically, very early on, when we didn't even know about... When did Watson and Crick do their thing? I don't know, 70 years ago or something. Who knows? We've only known about DNA for some period of time. We've only known about DNA for about the same amount of time as we've been able to use nuclear energy productively. And pretty early on, when there was a lot of misconceptions about how cancer was formed and what happens to the genes under radiation, some of the popular radiation people at the time, some of the popular geneticists at the time said, hey, this is a real, real problem. And they drew this linear comparison a graph that showed the effects of radiation to human health. And they drew it as a line linearly all the way down to zero and said, no matter how little radiation you get, it's going to have an increased effect on you having cancer. That has since been disproven by every medical radiation study that's ever been conducted. But using that standard, this linear no threshold model has persisted. And since how radiation affects biology is extremely complex because biology is extremely complex. They have never updated that model because there's so much infighting amongst the medical radiation standards setting community that they can't come to agreement on any other model to follow. So they just stick with a bad one that they started with 50 years ago. And that's permeated into other industries. I mean, think of how much it costs to undergo certain types of radiation treatment. So okay. can we just talk about radiation for a second? Sure. Radiation has only ever killed or caused cancer to few people, and it has saved almost a billion lives through medical radiation imaging. Radiation was used to kill off skin cancers in like the 1930s or 1940s, or like something extremely early on, radiation has been saving lives. And yet radiation treatment in medicine, and also energy, so this is where I'm coming to, is far, far, far more expensive than it could be, than it should be, because of these overbearing radiation standards that were set by these medical bodies. And, and then what about on that last point, the construction costs? Where does that come from? And how do we get out of it? Listen, this has just been one freaking disaster after another. If you look through the history of nuclear power plants being built, like you can even pinpoint individuals who just made terrible, terrible construction management decisions throughout history. And then the industry as a whole has just not made great decisions either. And part of it is because the incentives were in the right place. Are you talking about domestically or everywhere? That is a hard question to answer. There are some examples of when it was done very well, both domestically and other places as well. But there have been examples where it's been done terribly virtually everywhere also. And so is the answer just to work with more competent EPCs or? Well, part of the problem is the incentives aren't in place for the EPCs to deliver the cheapest product. You know, the Bay Bridge that connects San Francisco and Oakland, 
how much over budget and over schedule is that? We're talking like billions of dollars. It's almost all major. Oh, and the highway, uh, the California high-speed rail, how much over budget was that? It's because the incentives are not in place for these EPCs to drive down cost. Mm -hmm. The incentives, the way that the contracts are set up, are for them to drive up costs through what are called change orders as much as possible. That's how they increase their top line. And so how do we get out of that? I think you can do it contractually. I think you can set up contracts where all the incentives are in the right place. And then if you have extremely motivated and competent construction managers in place, I think you can work through these issues. Listen, this isn't the answer that people want to hear. Everyone wants to hear you have to have a new reactor. It's got to be molten salt or it's got to be fusion or it's got to be something new. Everyone wants to hear a sexy new moonshot thing is going to save us. And I'm going around and I'm saying you just need more competent project management. I'm glad that I met you when you're no holdback, Brett. I feel like no hold back Brett is funner than hold back Brett. So I'm just going to, that's just a general statement, but keep going. Let's go out for a few beers after this and you'll really <laughs> see no hold back Brett. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. But my last question though, or the last objection, then I have another topic to dig into, but the last objection that we didn't cover is the politically palatable one. Like, hey, look, I agree with you. Nuclear should proliferate, but it's never going to happen. It's not in the cards. The public has spoken. Uh, when was the last time that you voted on a wastewater treatment plant in your jurisdiction? Uh, I can't remember. I'm sorry. In America, do we have a referendum process on infrastructure? Was that what you were implying? When does the public have a vote about infrastructure? Sometimes. Sometimes some states do this. But most things get that get built. We don't go to the public and seek for permission prior. Whatever is cheapest usually gets built. Or whatever is a the most powerful lobbying organization can carve out rules to create some sort of competitive advantage. That's what gets built. This idea that the public votes on nuclear is ridiculous. Yes, in some cases, in some geographies, the public has created a lot of trouble. Environmental groups have created a lot of trouble and have delayed construction, which drove up costs, which put plants economically into the unfeasible range. But there is never a let's vote and just stop construction on this thing. And then there's so many places in America that love nuclear. Just because the rich elite in California and Massachusetts don't have a fuzzy feeling about nuclear, you don't know the rest of the country. And you don't know the rest of the world. And actually, one more I thought of, which is, can nuclear ever be cost competitive without a price on carbon? It should be. If proper construction management were applied, and the radiation standards were reset, I'm arguing that on its own, inherently, without a price on carbon, nuclear would be so cheap that building a new one, you would be able to compete with just the marginal cost of running fossil infrastructure. I don't think you need a tax on carbon. You just need to build cheap nuclear. Okay. So, Mr. Podcaster, you've done, what did you say? You 170 said, episodes, 1,200 conversations. Yeah, 170 episodes and 1,200 conversations. Here are your key takeaways. What do you do with all that information? Now you've got it. Now you know. So what are you doing? So I started this organization, the Energy Impact Center, essentially as a research institute to figure this stuff out. And now we're entering kind of phase two of our operations where we are trying to do something about it. One of the things that we're doing is we're hosting prize competitions where we encourage people to design nuclear reactors based on better construction management principles. Not sexy, but that's why we need to create a prize to make it sexy. So this is one of a few initiatives that we're doing. We're also still furthering our research on drought modeling and how that affects population movement. And so we're continuing to grow and continuing to build all of these efforts to put all the pieces in place where people feel the urgency and move towards nuclear and move towards nuclear that's cheap. 
And so if you look forward three years, five years, 10 years, even 50 years, and, and you're looking in the mirror, looking back on your life, what piece of this puzzle do you hope is the one that you made your mark on? So now you're asking uh, the question I always liked it in my podcast on, wondering if, well, how much time are we at? Oh, that means we're coming up on an hour. Boy, you've learned from me, huh? <laughs> what I want to do is I want to usher in an entire new era in nuclear innovation. That's what our organization is aiming towards right now. We are trying to make it so there can be hundreds of new nuclear companies out there that are acting in a way to reduce costs in nuclear. Not to make it safer, not to have a new type of reactor core, just to reduce costs. That is the ecosystem that we are trying to develop. And so if those 100 new companies come around in the next five years, and I'm partially responsible for that, I feel like I've done my piece to save the planet from climate change. Uh-huh. So just taking what's there and making it economical. That's right. And for the listeners out there, I guess there's two vectors I want to ask some closing questions on their behalf. One is you've put out some bold and controversial viewpoints. For the listeners that say, well, gosh, if that were true, that would completely change my thinking, but I haven't done that work. Is there a more efficient way for them to get up to speed than doing 1,200 discussions and 170 episodes? And if so, where would you point them? Unlike a lot of the other people who advocate for work towards climate change, I don't think the average person needs to do anything. I don't think we need taxes. I don't think we need subsidies. I think that what we need to do is create an industry that creates cheap nuclear. And so if your listeners aren't entrepreneurs or aren't engineers or aren't financiers, I don't care what they think. But if they are, that's the community I'm speaking to. And the first thing that you can do to start getting up to speed is listen to the 170 episodes where I go into depth on every single aspect of nuclear energy. But if they're concerned about climate change and our carbon problem, if you're them, it's nuclear all the way? If you're not going to do it biologically, there is no other way, according to the laws of physics, that you can remove the 1,000 gigatons of CO2 from the air, except nuclear energy. And the last question, which I ask every guest, is just now put aside people and skill sets and just look at money. If you had a big pot of money, let's say $100 billion, and you could allocate it towards anything to move the needle in the most impactful way to help with our climate change problem, where would it go? I said, keep your money. Change the radiation standards. I like it. This is like, I don't know where I come out on all that, but that's some serious food for thought. And it's very different than any guests we've had before. Awesome. Anything I didn't ask or any parting words for our listeners? No, this has been fun. I've definitely enjoyed the relationship that I built with you over this time. And I love listening to your podcast and I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thanks you too, Brett. So Brett Kogelmas, thank you for coming on the show. See you later. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.